Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, I'm Ann Hainer, Associate Director for Alumni Relations here at the Croc Institute. I am so looking forward to today's conversation about the significance of this year's Nobel Peace Prize. For those of you listening, this year, the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to Maria Ressa and Dmitry Muratov, journalists from the Philippines and Russia, respectively. Ressa is the co-founder of Rappler, a digital media company for investigative journalism. And Muratov is one of the founders of the independent publication Novaya Gazeta. Today, on this episode of the CrocCast, we would like to have a conversation about the significance of this Peace Prize selection and the role that journalism and press freedom plays in peace building and preventing and addressing violent conflicts. When the Peace Prize was announced, I immediately thought of our Croc alumni who are working as journalists in Africa, Asia, Europe, and the United States. It was gratifying to see the recognition of the value of their work for peace building. I'm joined today by several great guests, including two of our alumni journalists. First, Peter Wallenstein is the Richard G. Starman Senior Research Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and Senior Professor in the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Sweden's Uppsala University. Every year, he offers commentary on the Nobel Peace Prize recipients on behalf of the Kroc Institute. Welcome, Peter. Obi Anyadike is the senior Africa editor for the New Humanitarian and is currently based in Johannesburg, South Africa. He's also a 1997 graduate of the Kroc Institute's Master's in International Peace Studies program. Welcome, Obi. Jason Subler is the general manager for Asia with Reuters and is currently based in Singapore. He's also a 1998 graduate of the MA program here at the Institute. Welcome, Jason. And Sarah Nanjala, a journalist from Kenya and a current Master of Global Affairs International Peace Studies student here at the Kroc Institute at the Keough School. Welcome, Sarah. We're really happy to have you all here with us. First of all, I wanted to start with Jason, Obi, and Sarah. And by way of background, could you tell us a little about what first drew you to the Kroc Institute to study peace and how your career path either before or after Notre Dame led you to journalism? Perhaps part of that is what connections do you see between journalism and peace building? Let's start with Jason. Oh, thanks, Anne. I'm really happy to be here. It's great to catch up. Yeah, so what brought me, what attracted me to the to the Kroc Institute, I would just say, I, at that time, I, I had already been studying um, German and, and trying to get some international experience and, and, and that sort of thing. And I think what really drew me to the program was the really global nature of what we have looking at global issues and trying to look at it from the perspective, not just of one particular country, you know, but, but of that sort of global view of how we deal with Issues of important, whether that be conflict itself or environmental issues and, or the, everything uh, that's all related. And that's something that I then, I later moved to China 
And that's something that I, I brought with me. And I always had an interest in, I would say, trying to build bridges, you know, or, or to help foster greater understanding between different cultures, different societies. And, and I think that's a large part of what drew me then to journalism was hoping to share more about what was happening in, in other parts of the world back with audiences, not just in the United States, but around the world. I ended up as you say, joining Reuters news agency. And, and one of the things that I've always appreciated about Reuters is, is the fact that it's, a true, again, a truly global organization, not rooted in any one country per se, but really trying to just approach the world in that, that way of looking at issues as objectively as we can. Great. Thank you very much. Obi? And, uh, great to be here with you. I guess I've been a journalist for, for a while, and... The reporting on conflict, seeing quite a bit of that and trying to understand what was driving it and trying to think of like an alternative way of viewing current affairs and the political situation. I think you know, the crop really seemed ideal at that time to be able to step back and try and understand those sort of processes that as a journalist you're reporting from the ground, but to try and understand in global terms, but in kind of process terms, what was causing these kinds of eruptions? And if there was, as I said, an alternative, a better way of trying to analyze and look at politics. Um, so I think that, that for me was, was the beauty of the Crock Institute and you know, the fact that the resources were monstrous. I mean, I've never been in a place where there was a 13-story library. Um, so in my career, that, that just seemed like an ideal time to be able to step back and think about things. And then after finishing, I then joined a kind of a nascent outfit called Irin, which was at the time was kind of an independent unit as part of the UN that was looking at the humanitarian, looking at humanitarian reporting and the humanitarian consequences of conflict. And that seemed to gel and fit perfectly with what I'd been doing at CROP. And that's kind of where I've been ever since, that kind of humanitarian reporting. Um, that's slightly different from the kind of the bang bang and, and the kind of spot news hard news reporting, a kind of analytical feature kind of stuff that, again, allows you to set, step back and, and look at developments in a, in a broader, more complete sort of way. And that's, that, as I said, has taken me from Kenya to South Africa, where I'm now based. And it's really given me tools to try and analyze the situations that we find ourselves in. Great. Thank you so much for being with us here, Obi. Sarah. What brought you here? Yeah, thank you. Well, initially what brought me here basically was just to be able to understand the connections between journalism and conflict. And this came from uh, my work as a journalist and also my experiences in Kenya having grown up there and the instances where we would have outbursts of election violence and how the media played their role in in that violence, either through how they report the conflict itself and whether or not they are contributing to the furthering of that conflict or to the reduction of it. And so this is mainly what attracted me to the Croc Institute and in the International Peace Studies. And from that, I was quite aware that the media as an entity has a lot of impact on how people think, on how people view situations and issues. And with them not understanding how conflict works, they may be able to be very 
dangerous tools in furthering conflict. And so for me being here at the Croc Institute, I just want to understand how I can be able to contribute in reducing conflict and promoting peace instead. Thank you. Wonderful. So great to have you here with us both at Croc and on the podcast. Just to focus now specifically on this year's Peace Prize, Peter, I'd love to hear your thoughts about why the Nobel Committee selected Ressa and Murtoff as this year's recipients. Why did they choose journalists? Why this particular focus? What do you think they were prioritizing in terms of the urgent peace issues that are facing our global community? Yeah, let me start with that uh, question of the urgency. I think that's uh, the important point also for the Nobel Committee. The press freedom has really been shrinking around in the world. Reporters Without Border has their own uh, freedom index, and they say that about 132 countries have seen increasing ways of blocking media freedom. And you can also see the index of, of democracy, how authoritarianism is increasing. So I think that was one part of the message that they wanted to do, uh, to say, claim that this is really a threat to long-term peace and security, that we don't get high-quality information. The other part is, of course, then that they selected two journalists that are struggling, basically, in countries that are going in a more authoritarian direction. Reza, she is active in the Philippines, where a lot of journalists have been killed lately. And Muratov is in Russia, as you mentioned, in Novaya Gazeta, where several of the journalists have also been killed. And there is a lot of harassment. So I think that's what they wanted to illustrate with these two people at the same time that they I hope, uh, help these two and their colleagues in their situations in Russia and the Philippines, respectively. Great. That's a, that's a really good perspective. I'm wondering if Sarah and Obi and Jason, do you have any thoughts on what what the award means to you? How did How did it strike you when you heard about the Nobel Peace Prize being given to journalists, uh, given that that's your profession? And how do you see that fitting in and all of these global issues that as journalists, you're covering often what other global issues are going on, what are the major threats to peace and causes of conflict. But now the focus is on the journalists particularly and and how that's reported and how the information is freely available. As Peter said, what what are your thoughts about the meaning of the award in, in your context? Obi, you want to have any thoughts? Well, yeah, it's hard. Obviously, it's a personal triumph for, for both. And a message of encouragement to others. I think watching the news, I think we've been aware of Ressa's troubles with RAPLA, um, how the government has used state power to you know, silence dissent and resist any attempt at accountability. And they have, they have that in the Philippines, there's that casual, violent populist rhetoric um, that's pushing back against progressive alternatives that uh, I think RAPLA represents. And in Russia, we obviously we've heard about the corruption of the regime and that actually kills its perceived opponents as well. And I think uh, Peter mentioned that tragedy. There's also the journalist Anna Politkovskaya, um, who was also murdered just doing her job. So, you know, my initial thought was that I hope, you know, it emboldens and empowers others. In our respective regions, we all know journalists have been harassed, jailed, and murdered. Um, in Zimbabwe, there's Hopewell, uh, Hopewell Chinona, just for reporting on corruption. 
he, he was dragged um, through the courts. In Nigeria, Omoyeni uh, Sowore, uh, also jailed for his reporting. In Somalia, 57 journalists have been killed since, since 2010, uh, and only four perpetrators have, have, have been detained. So you know, journalism is in a fragile place, and journalists are really vulnerable. So you know, the Nobel recognition is nice and hope for change, but I think we also recognize that you know, the liberal forces are strong, and they've got many weapons in their locker. So what you know, we, we have to ask ourselves, perhaps, is you know, will, for example, Ressa winning the, the Nobel Prize, what, what effect will that have in the elections in Philippines in 2022? So I think, you know, all of us as concerned global citizens have to keep our eyes on the ball. True, true. Sarah, do you have any reflections on the Peace Prize? Uh, yes. Well, I was really excited when I heard about the announcement and particularly because it was journalists. And it kind of was very encouraging for those who do the work of journalism and who are facing these challenges every day, especially, um, as Obia said, about the dwindling uh, media, media freedoms. So being recognized by this you know, award is like an encouragement to other journalists in, in the work that we do, that what we do matters, how we report on conflict matters. And, you know, you know just being recognized, it goes a really long way. And it also encourages other journalists in their work to continue doing what they, they're doing. And it even goes further to, it's like a broad proclamation generally to the world that uh, media freedom is important and that we need to advocate for press freedom and, and encourage journalists to continue, you know, being the watchguard for society, so to speak. Yeah, so I was very excited when I heard about this. And I hope even in the future that more journalists are recognized for their work and that in some way it can be able to encourage governments and institutions to be more compliant and less corrupt. Great. That's wonderful. Jason? Yeah, sure. I mean, really echoing Obi and Sarah, there's been so much distrust of the media sown by you know, many politicians and others in the last several years. And I do think that hopefully in some way, if this prize can help with the broader public to restore a bit of a sense of the understanding of the importance of the, the media and the fact that really there are so many brave journalists out there trying to risking it all in many cases, risk, you know, risking their personal safety and liberty in many cases to try to uncover wrongdoing to try to uncover wrongs that are happening you know so that they the public can understand better what's happening in other parts of the world or in their backyard you know i think hopefully if, if anything good can come out of that hopefully it's that, it, that in my mind that the public takes note a little more and and realizes just just in a way what a precious resource they have maybe taken many people have taken for granted in the sense of the, the role that brave, dedicated journalists who are, you know, just dedicated professionals are playing on a daily basis to try to bring the stories and revealing the truth about often very bad things that are happening in the world to them, to their mobile phone screen, so that they can have a better understanding. Yeah, that's really, that's wonderful. I, I was thinking that part of it is, is kind of what, what you all said, that maybe it allows an opportunity for the journalists to also focus 
help focus the world's attention on the role of the journalists. I find, for instance, from, from my perspective, tracking alumni, that when we have alumni who are journalists, it's often hard to find a lot of information about them because they tend to blend into the background and not put the focus on themselves. They're not making often big you know, websites and, and saying, hi, look at me, this is what I've accomplished. They're instead reporting on other people. And so it's interesting. I hope that this will be an opportunity maybe for the journalists to have a, an excuse and a, and a context in which to report on the kinds of threats and abuses and, and various things that you all have mentioned, the risks to journalism, to both to individual journalists, to their lives, and as well as to the whole society if the press freedom is, is threatened. Which brings us to the question, sort of the maybe the big overarching question of, is press freedom a peace-building issue? I would suspect you would all say that it is, <laughs> um, but it, maybe you think that it's obvious why press freedom is a peace-building issue, but you can perhaps spell it out a bit for those who are listening, how you perceive the connections between press freedom and peace-building. Peter, do you want to start? Yes, uh, the, the Nobel Committee, of course, has to defend why it gives the peace prize. And it refers to a clause in the uh, Nobel, Alfred Nobel's will, where the peace prize is devoted to building fraternity among nations. A fraternity among nations means really brotherhood, sisterhood, humanhood, so to say. And part of that is really transparency uh, and to know what the other sides are doing. Instead of having espionage, we should have press freedom that reports correctly about what is going on. So that's basically their argument. So for them, it is a typical part of, of peace and peace work. In terms of peace building, I, I think our lessons are, are quite clear that if you are going to reconstruct the country after a war, openness, transparency, non-avoidant sort of control over corruption is really very important in building trust in the new conditions that people will really think that the new the post-war or the post-apartheid or the post-dictatorship times are really built in a way that is good for all of us. And transparency is part of that, and uh, that's where the media freedom is an integral part. You can see it also belongs to the human rights that we have in the human rights declarations. Uh, uh, many have specifically pointed to this. So all that is part of, of building a peace that will be lasting after a war or a dictatorship. So I, I see it as an integral part of peace building. Great. Thank you very much, Peter. Obi and, and Jason, I know both of you have worked in various different country and culture contexts in the course of your long careers in journalism. How do you see from your perspectives, how is press freedom related to peace building? Any thoughts on that, Obi? So I guess it, it rests on the idea that a free independent, independent media fosters democracy. So, you know, the professional ethics of, of reporting, that you report truthfully, and that allows a free exchange of views, and you hold, you know, hold the powerful to account, highlight abuses, which is all very important for an active democracy. But just to in, inject maybe a slight note of, a slightly cynical note, I, th I think the media also needs to be intentional in what it does. 
mass media doesn't always perform you know, the functions that we kind of ascribe to it in terms of upholding the values of democracy. It can be partisan, you know, there's business interests, it can be an enabler even. We saw the New York Times in the Iraq war, uh, you know, a venerable newspaper, but you know, its role in kind of supporting um, going to war in Iraq was, was significant. So we always have to be on, on guard. I don't think it's a general blanket take. We want quality journalism. I think that's, that's perhaps the rider. And we've also seen the danger, I think, as Jason mentioned previously, that the way the public perceives the media is kind of an issue as well, because I think, you know, sometimes the media is not seen as a honest broker, or that's part of this new kind of polarization we've seen in society, where, you know, legacy media is no longer trusted, and we have the rise of partisan social media. And, and that's a challenge that I think legacy media and media in general need to recognize. So I, I think the idea of, of, you know, a direct causal link between press freedom and, and peace is not necessarily there. But I think if you have intentional peace-building media, that that's the role that they try and deliver on. I think we can see perhaps more success. I think in my experience or in my neighborhood, the kind of edutainment, edutainment programs that are trying to work on, on, on combat, combating violent extremism can work. It, again, it's not a direct link, but I think the idea is that through that kind of providing alternative ideas, providing a platform for people to sort of voice new thoughts, new ways of thinking, that in a sense can start dismantling some of the, the drivers of violence. And so I think that's just the slight critique I'll add or just that slightly alternative take. Jason? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I would to some degree echo what he'll be saying. I mean, first of all, I would say, you know, certainly at Reuters, for example, our brand of journalism, what we try to practice is um, embodied in what we call our trust principles. So these are actually created, drafted and adopted in 1941 in the the middle of World War II. And the idea is we try to be essentially as independent and free of bias as possible to to try our very best to to just tell tell the story of what's happening and is in as independent and objective a manner as we can. And that that's, I mean, I know, I mean, that's, this is just our own sort of brand of journalism. You know, there are certainly other outlets that are, that take a more partisan view or, or another a, a view that may be a little more clearly on one side of an issue or another. But for us anyway, you know, the, the reason that we adopted the trust principles, especially at that time, was that we found that we couldn't report on something like a conflict, really with our journalists being safe and being able to report effectively if we were seen as taking any one side, right? And, and that's just been something that's been with us ever since then. And it's really part of how we try to approach things. And it's certainly something that for me personally has been, I think, a big part of why I like working <laughs> working there. And, 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 you know, as opposed to maybe some other outlets that are taking a particular view or side on things. But I, I would just say, you know, that, that I do agree with, I'd be like, it's not just press freedom. It, it's also about how the press practices the craft, how, how the media outlets engage. And, um, you know, I think there needs to be great care taken to try to make sure that your one is being as fair and, and objective as possible. 
that, that's not to say to mince words about what's happening. I mean, just an example that, you know, we, um, we, we won a Pulitzer Prizes twice for coverage of the persecution of the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar in 2014 and 19. In 2018, for reporting of uh, the killing campaign as part of uh, President Duterte's drug war in the Philippines. Tough, hard looks at what our people in power are doing and often doing wrong, you know, are doing in a way that is, um, that is having a very negative impact on others. And I think that that's another part of the responsibility to look closely at what those in power or the, those in power, powerful institutions, whether it's government or corporations or, or what have you, what they may be doing that is wrong. And, and that's a part of the role that the media should play as a, that sort of watchdog in the fourth estate. Great, really good good point. Sarah, I remember one of the things you, you mentioned as your concerns when you decided to study peace was also thinking about the risks of what can happen, you know, how can journalism sometimes perhaps even be one of the causes of conflict or have a negative effect in various ways? So obviously that brings up a little bit of a, you know, a quandary here because obviously you want to protect press freedom, but how, how do you see those uh, intersecting, those issues intersecting? Yeah, thank you for the question. And this I draw from my experience from Kenya, where I was a journalist. And I think the issue mostly is sometimes journalists, I think they're not quite very aware of the impact that they have on whatever they, they report. And this even goes beyond like just what they publish on the papers or what they say on the radio or on the TV. Because like for certain individuals who are really known across the country as uh, media professionals, even what they tweet, for example, affects how people view them because we have people view them as journalists or so whatever they basically tweet or say in public is kind of viewed as truth, uh, so to speak. And so by not being aware of what we say or how we say it can affect conflict or can affect how people react to situation, then we may unknowingly affect how the conflict turns out. So like, um, as Jason has said, we do not really want to mince words on like what is happening, but how we report it really matters. And like, for example, in Kenya, during the uh, post-election violence in uh, 2007, the investigations after even implicated some journalists in how they reported their work and how it affected the, the conflict in that they would incite people to go out and defend themselves. And this is not very journalistic of them. And, and they even went to the ICC to, to be prosecuted. And this just shows that that we, although we, we want to have press freedom, although we, 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 we are fighting for press freedom, we do need to use this press freedom very responsibly and, and to be very, to have that sense of responsibility in that we do shape the agenda of the public and that our work impacts people on how they, they, they think, how they react, and, and that we should have that sense of, you know, whatever happens in society, we kind of do contribute to it in some way or one way or the other. And without this knowledge of how our work affects conflict, it, it can bring issues. And so in situations where, like I've been speaking to some of my colleagues back at home, and I think there's also like 
a training kind of going on because you're supposed to have an election uh, elections next year. And so journalists are currently going through training on how they should report on issues. And by doing such things, it kind of helps journalists be aware of, of what they do. So while we promote our press, our press freedoms, we also need to take responsibility and you know, ensure that what we are, we are doing does not create a negative impact. Excellent. Peter? Yeah, thank you. I thought these were three very thoughtful uh, reflections. Uh, and I liked the, the idea that, uh, or the concept that Hobi had about uh, quality journalism. Uh, I think that's basic, and, and Sarah alludes to that as well. So there is a need of training. There is even a, perhaps necessary to defend what is a journalist and what is not a journalist. And, and with journalism goes a particular type of training uh, and uh, using the kind of rules that, that Jason were talking about. But the basic point is that those who check the quality should not be the states or the power holders. It should be the journalists themselves, so to say, that keep these standards. Otherwise, we invite for the, the negation of press freedom if it is the state that is going to check who, who is of quality or not. And I think that's really important. Let me just add one point using the conflict data program here as an example when we try to collect information about particular conflicts, what is happening, for instance, in Ethiopia now, you cannot rely on government sources or rebel sources. You need to have, sort of say, independent reporting. And so that's also important for our data collection, that this reporting is done in according to the principles, the Reuters principles, or whatever we should call them, uh, in, in a way which is not partisan. That's the only way we can... Uh, really know what is happening. And if we're going to build peace, we need to have that accurate reporting, not the slanted reporting, not lies, but really the truth of what is going on. That's where journalism is important. And I'm pretty sure this is also what the Nobel Committee had in mind when they handed out the prize to these two journalists. Excellent point, Peter, and the way in which that unbiased reporting can be the foundation of much of the rest of the work of peace building. We have to have the information first. I'm wondering if any of you have questions for each other as well, that maybe some of the comments that you all have, have made might have sparked any thoughts that you, that you want to ask each other as, uh, as journalists or as peace builders. Maybe one, one, one point pulling up from, from Sarah's and to an extent uh, what Peter said. I think it's kind of interesting that after the terrible election violence in Kenya in, in 2007, there was a, a commitment by media to be careful and diligent in how they reported. And that was wrapped up with a lot of training as well, in-house, locally. It doesn't, didn't necessarily mean people from outside came. But I think you know, it, it forced journalists to consider their words and I think what we saw in 2013 election, the next election, there was almost a fear of creating the kind of conditions that would allow violence to, to emerge. And there were very peaceful elections. I think the media watched itself. As Peter said, you don't want the state to do it, but the media monitored itself. And I think that was really valuable. Obviously, you know, the, the fear of being taken to The Hague, <laughs> the International Criminal Court might have helped as well. But I think that was a valuable lesson that the media can regulate. And I think, again, you know, around the idea of quality journalism, around the idea of being intentional, that 
we as journalists need to be mindful of our ethics and our professionalism. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Opie, on that. It did create a sense of not just being monitored by the by the state, but also like within the media itself, monitoring itself. And I think after that, we even revised some of our, because we have like a media manual, I forgot the name, the code of conduct. So I think the media body in Kenya that oversees all the media houses went through the code of conduct again, and, and, and they do regular trainings each year. And I think the the media, it's called Media Council of Kenya. So it usually trains the editors and then the editors in turn then do an in-house training within their respective uh, media houses. But I think, yeah, it did help create that awareness in that our reporting affects conflict. Maybe just to add, I, I would say, obviously I, I work for an international news agency, but um, the role of the local news organizations in the countries around the world is really so important. I mean, oftentimes they're informing their own local communities, but even for the world, obviously learning about what's happening in certain conflict areas or, or areas where maybe there are humanitarian issues and that sort of thing. I mean, I, I just wanted to give a shout out to the vital role played by the journalists working for the local publications and, you know, the very, um, you know, the very challenging conditions that many of them face and persecution and, and worse in some cases. I think that's something that, I mean, I think that coming back to the prize itself, it's great that the prize was focused on these two institutions that are that are addressing issues in their own countries. Yes, excellent points. I think those, those all echo each other's uh, comments very well. I'm wondering what do you see, maybe it, to just broaden out, uh, follow up on some of the things you've said, but broaden out the question, what are the key issues that you see facing journalists in the global community today? Are there other other areas that you think need to be the real focus as we're going forward in the future? What what are the the ways that journalists are struggling with particular issues or uh, that they need to recognize or issues to bring out in the world that are the responsibility of journalists in particular in a, a peace-building context? Of course, there is this danger, as we have mentioned, of people being killed. Uh, but I think, uh, and that's obvious, uh, that there need to be protection. And I hope that this prize, in a sense, contributes to protection also for other journalists. But it's also a lot of legal harassments, I think, that are important. For instance, for Reza to go to Oslo to pick up the price uh, requires a permission by the courts because she is faced with a number of court procedures which are really there to destroy her ability to work as a journalist and are not really serious, but they have to be dealt with through the courts. And uh, Muratov faces the threat of being called a foreign agent by receiving money from abroad, and that would also then jeopardize his way of operating. So there are all these kind of sophisticated or increasingly sophisticated ways of, of harassing free media. And I think the prize should also be used to illustrate that it's not just killing. There are all kinds of other things going on all the time and they, they need to be observed and reacted to. There's certainly, yeah, I mean, many governments and companies around the world are certainly trying to, I would say, take efforts, often very sophisticated, as you say, Peter, to, to try to shrink the space for journalists to be able to do reporting and to gather information about what's happening. Often, you know, just growing more and more sophisticated in terms of 
making it difficult for a journalist to, to do that work. You know, that could be a matter of intimidating sources, surveillance tactics, all, all sorts of things. And so journalists face really, um, you know, not it's not just physical threats of violence, uh, you know, in a war zone, but many, as you say, many very sophisticated approaches to try to make it, to try to throw up barriers to them to do their job. And so, you know, journalists need to be increasingly sophisticated, also sophisticated about their information security to protect their sources, um, you know, their own, about their own physical security, as you say. And I think, you know, raising awareness about those things as well is equally important to enable journalism to continue to happen <laughs> in a way that really can dig for more underlying information that isn't, that others might wish didn't come to light in the public. Yeah, I'd like to echo that as well. I mean, I think with the state, it's evolving and they're responding and they've got a range of weapons that they can use and beyond you know, the old-fashioned banning and old-fashioned censorship. So you know, we're seeing smarter but just as repressive sort of techniques from paid commentators to trolls, bots, fake news sites. So I think for, the, for an audience, it's confusing. And for journalists, it's certainly worrying and threatening, uh, especially when the state uses laws as it's done with Ressa to, to basically keep her quiet. That's sort of like lawful but awful kind of approach where you, know, you can tie somebody up uh, in the courts uh, or ban their newspaper for no real reason at all, but you find a way to do it legally. The other thing that I think we need to be aware of is, is how do we deal with social media? I think, I think we have to recognize you know, that the power of social media, and it can be a force for good, but also we can see it um, coarsening the debate, becoming more toxic, polarizing communities. I think you know, the, the revelations around Facebook is disturbing. I mean, the fact that algorithms that kind of so dissent, confusion, and confusion, and kind of provoke violence, sell, hate sells. So in a sense, you know, that failure to moderate and control, you know, these social media platforms is, is a, should be a worry. And if you think it's bad in the West, as we saw over the, the election in America or perhaps the Brexit debate in, in the UK, you need to be aware, as I'm sure Jason knows, that it's, it's even worse in places like Myanmar or Ethiopia where, you know, these social media platforms don't have many interpreters or many people who speak the local language. So a lot of this hate media flies under the radar and their hate speech algorithm picks up very little of it. It might not be a direct kind of link between social media, hate speech and violence, but we do know it polarizes. And it's not just social media, we're seeing that you know, with opinion journalism. So that you know, the idea of objective, in inverted commas, journalism, maybe losing out to the opinion journalism, which I see as no, really dip, no real difference from entertainment journalism and the idea that it kind of sows, sows dissent. So maybe, you know, what, what we need to try and think of is, is if there's a blend of kind of like legacy media and, and quality journalism that also, you know, incorporates the immediacy of social media as a kind of a new model going forward. Excellent. Sarah, did you have any any other thoughts? I completely agree with everyone on what they have said, and particularly on the the view of the media by the public. It's also um, is like one of the many challenges. Uh, in addition to every, what everyone else has said, like if the if the media itself is not viewed 
as, for lack of a good word, like as serious by the public, then whatever they report on is then is not viewed as serious. And this is something that I've seen back at home where there's a term that we used to call the, like the public used to call the journal, the, the media, they call it Githeri Media. And this just means like, it just produces trash, for, so to speak, or it, it does not, it's not a very serious entity. And if the public does not view you as a serious entity, you know, that you're just riddled by corruption, you are always swayed by politicians uh, through briberies and stuff, and that you're your stories are not very objective. And if we lose this view of objectivity as journalists or this perception as being unbiased, then it affects what we, we do. That even if we have serious journalists who are reporting on, on serious issues such as human rights abuses or corruption, then the public really doesn't you know, take it seriously. And so from that, we do need to take what we do very seriously and you know, try to make our image as flawless as it can be. We need to remain unbiased. We need to remain unfazed. We should not be, and especially like during election years, there's usually a lot of corruption going on. There's a lot of bribery by politicians. You can see like uh, the outright biasness by the media who are focusing on one uh, party over the other. And if we refrain from doing these things, then we can be able to be very objective and the public can be able to view us as such. And this would make our work appear as serious as it is. And then we can be able to bring the impact that we want to achieve in society. So yeah, in addition to all of that, I think the perception that we have is also very important. And just adding just a bit, I think the restrictions by the state is also very challenging, especially in countries in Africa, where during, you know, they, they they make it very difficult for you to do your job. They create, as we say, they create laws that continuously restrict media freedom. During like election years, they cut off the internet. In some countries, we've seen that, you know, they cut off your internet. And there was even a time that we had like a media blackout for like, I don't know, two weeks. There was no media working in the country. And so this issues uh, they just restrict you know the work that journalists do and I don't know how we can be able to deal with state restrictions perhaps more reporting on it further and you know trying to advocate for it but yeah these are just some of the challenges that you know I have experienced myself. Thank you for that perspective from on the ground <laughs> what it can really feel like for the the journalists facing some of these challenges. I feel like with every comment, I think of more questions and more avenues I want to explore. What about social media? What about <laughs> restrictions? What, you know, I want to continue the conversation for another few hours, but we don't have that long for the podcast. So as we're wrapping up our time, I'm just wondering if any, any of you have any final thoughts about what types of conversations you hope this uh, Nobel Peace Prize sparks going forward, particularly for those of us in the peacebuilding community like at the Kroc Institute now, the students, the alumni, our community around the world, what kinds of conversations should we be following up on and, and exploring given the uh, this particular context of the Nobel Peace Prize this year? Peter? Yes, I think uh, it should foster a discussion about what we are talked about, the quality journalism and how important it is to be very careful when you think about the sources, when you be critical 
not only of social media, but also uh, other publications. And if that becomes the conversation, then the Nobel Peace Prize have, has achieved something by, by lifting up the importance of quality reporting, quality media, responsibility of media, but also that media should take that responsibility itself rather than having the state authorities involved. So in that sense, I think it is a, a positive prize uh, for building a better future. I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I certainly, I think, I mean, hopefully, again, it raises a more awareness about the importance of objective reporting, um, you know, from various parts of the world about the important developments that are happening on the ground. You know, hopefully that will encourage people more to subscribe, you know, subscribe to media that they feel are doing. I like the way Obi puts it, you know, quality journalism, which you know, I think is worth using as a shorthand for doing objective, fair, brave reporting and, um, you know, subscribe. So there are also, you know, entities that need subscriptions and or what have you to, to survive and to keep doing that important work. And I think that realization, you know, you talk about social media. Now, finally, some of the social media companies are sort of being forced to share some of the, the spoils of the advertising with the, the companies that are actually producing the content a little bit more. But um, I think um, the more that one realizes that, that this is something that takes a lot of effort and time to produce and to create that they can support organizations they think are doing important work. You know, that's also equally important to helping to, to sustain that, that sort of, let's say public service or the service that is, uh, that many organizations are doing. Yeah. I'd like to echo what everybody has said. I think the, the Nobel Peace Prize really is a shot in the arm, I hope for, for journalists around the world. And I hope it also sparks the kind of conversation around the need for the protection of journalists. I mean, journalists can sometimes be a hated profession, but they, they certainly don't deserve to die for, for the work that they do. And sadly, we're, we're seeing that. And it, it doesn't have to be in war zones. I think I read somewhere that last year, more journalists died in countries that are supposed to be at peace rather than your traditional war zones. Mexico was one, one example. So I think also in terms of the idea around social media, and I think both journalists who are honoured also raise the issue around the states and how the state uses social media. But more broadly, we know that social media can be a force for good, you know, can create international solidarity. We saw that in Nigeria on the, you know, Bring Back Our Girls, the whole Chibok Girls campaign, and that, you know, was building a positive constituency. But it can also be troublesome. The idea that social media platforms tweak their algorithms to encourage engagement, which means more divisive types of posts climb up the rankings is an issue when their own research tells them that people don't want those kind of postings. People want more, they want the algorithm to, to be tweaked back to what it was, more friends and family and cute cats and kittens rather than you know, the, the polarizing political debates that we're seeing. So I think human beings don't want to live in a society where which is divided and divisive. And that's, you know, I think as, as you know, coming out of the Croc Institute, I think as journalists, sometimes we can play a role. Uh, the New Humanitarian, we, we have a small project on, on trying to do peace building journalism, which tries to look at alternative ways of, of building peace, you know, grassroots peace building, which don't have to be these big international UN driven peace processes, but, you know, to recognize what's happening at the grassroots level. And I think, you know, 
I think maybe that's one of the thoughts that we can have coming out of this award, that, that people want to be in a more humane societies and world. Um, yeah, if I can just jump in. Yeah, I think the recognition of journalists in this award just, you know, starts, creates that opportunity to start the debate or to continue the debate on how important journalists are in, in conflict situations or in reporting for peace. And I think even like within media houses, it has become like a a source of inspiration for them to, you know, continue the work that they're doing for governments to also realize and the public as well to realize that, you know, journalists are very important people in society and that the media plays a, a very important role and that their freedoms, essentially the freedom of the press, then equates to a more democratic space and a more liberal space within society. And I think this gives us the opportunity to continue that conversation on how press freedom essentially equates to more democracy. Thank you very much for all of your insightful comments and ideas. I really appreciate your all of you joining us from across the world, from Uppsala and Johannesburg and Singapore and here in South Bend, bringing your perspectives from such a, a variety of backgrounds, but all of your thoughtful reflections, particularly on the profession of journalism and how that's relating to, to peace building. We appreciate your being part of our extended global Croc Institute community and uh, helping us to, to learn from you and your work as time goes on. So we really appreciate your, your being here with us and sharing, sharing with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Anne. You've been listening to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.